We're going to look now at the history of one of Ireland's most popular cultural sites, Dublin's Natural History Museum. Housing an intact 19th century scientific collection, it offers visitors a glimpse into the early years of natural history. You may know it as the Dead Zoo, but as we'll hear, this institution is about much more than the display of static natural materials. From the time it opened in 1857, Ireland's first public museum served as an educational venue, frequented by ordinary citizens and visitors, as well as the leading figures in natural science. A recently published book from Cork University Press, The First National Museum, Dublin's Natural History Museum of the 19th Century, explores the institution's origins. The author is Dr. Sherry Murphy, who joins me now in studio. Sherry, you're very welcome to the to the History Show. The focus of the book is primarily on, I suppose, a, a cross-section or a short period of the history of the Natural History Museum, 1840 to 1870, the Victorian period. Was there a huge interest in natural history during those years? There was, and that's one of the reasons I chose that period to talk about, because that period in Ireland is often not explored outside the political history. So natural history was the great citizen science project of the 19th century, and science was deeply embedded into Victorian culture. So the century's social and intellectual discourses were were characterized by a kind of constant flow of new scientific information. And that was based around kind of the global, that was due to a few different things, global exploration and colonization, developments in technology and manufacturing like steam-powered travel or improvements in printing, the same conditions that drove things like the rise in literacy or uh, the increased consumption of newspapers also drove the popularity of, of natural science. So because of that, natural science is one of the few sciences that was most easily grasped by the general public. Collecting specimens didn't require that much in the way of equipment and reasonably priced publications were kind of everywhere. You could teach yourself natural history. So anyone could choose an area to study and start a collection and educate themselves and, and start to trade specimens and informations with other people, go to classes, collect things, donate them to museums. So that's one of the reasons I chose to focus on that area. And the collections that form the basis of the museum actually began under the stewardship of the RDS, not in the in, in location-wise in the RDS where we know of it today, but actually much closer to where the, the Natural History Museum is. So tell us about that linkage. Well, the RDS did an awful lot of things for the improvement of Ireland in, in the 19th century, but they established, one of the things they did earlier than that in the 18th century was establish a museum in the basement of the Irish Parliament in 1733. So they started displaying objects um, as part of their overall improvement goals. And... At the start, it was kind of resolutely practical. They, what they meant to do was show landowners about the things on their land and to make their land more productive. So those exhibits were intended to familiarise the landowning classes uh, with what was on their land and with advances in, in technology. Those displays later moved to Hawkins Street and then they moved to Leinster House in 1815, which is where the museum uh, was opened on kind of six rooms in the first floor. So that's where it actually begins. It begins in what we now think of as, as Dáil Éireann, yeah. not in the building where it's housed, which is right next to Dáil Éireann. Yes, it's, it, it began in, in Leinster House. It's so familiar to me now, that fact, um, that I'm always surprised that people don't know it, but people are quite surprised to find that out. So, yes, you'd go a big giant staircase up to the first floor of Leinster House and, and wend your way through six tiny, what used to be bedrooms, for the Duke of Leinster's family. So tell us then about the, the building which we now think of as the Natural History Museum. When did that come about? How did that come about? Well, that was kind of in the works for a long time because those six rooms outgrew their usefulness very, very quickly. 
the collections grew very quickly. And in the early 1840s, the RDS started talking about building a new museum. And that discussion went kind of around the houses until the early 1850s when everything kind of aligned in terms of money and availability for that to happen. So they they started building that building in, in 1856. And it was partly spurred on by the idea that the British Association for the Advancement of Science was holding its annual conference in Dublin in 1857. So that building was rushed a little bit to meet that deadline. They wanted to they wanted to launch the building in August of 1857 when the British Association met in Ireland. And is that why there are still legacy issues with the building? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because the the construction was rushed in 1857 when it opened. It was a, it was brilliant. You can read about it in the, in the newspapers from August of 1857. It was a really brilliant fashionable party and lots of stuff happened at the museum but the ground floor was unfinished the floors were dirt effectively and the walls were concrete and um, they kind of dressed it up but it was nothing had been installed and they, they fitted up the first floor for a kind of grand soiree on the Thursday night of that week and a few events took place there Dr Livingston Dr Stanley Livingston had just returned from Africa and they managed to snaffle him to give a talk and Lord Kelvin gave a talk on the laying of the Atlantic Cable and the science behind it and there were you know there were lots of there was a big kind of what they call the conversazione, a big, giant, sort of very fashionable party on the Thursday evening. But they never, fin- they never finished the roof either, did they? They didn't. No, well, so what, what happened in the aftermath of all of that was in late 1857, early 1858, when it snowed, the glass roof leaked. And at the time, it was a pitched glass roof. And one of the things that happened when it was being renovated afterward was that the glazed flat ceiling that we're familiar with um, was installed. So that's that has been faulty and problematic ever since. So that's one of the things that, that they're working to rectify now. So that ceiling was basically to hold the water that was coming in. Yes, through it the was roof. to prevent the specimens. Well, the, the, the glass roof let in too much light, so the specimens were becoming faded. Yeah, and it leaked so that the collections were in danger. So that's it was to kind of mitigate the light and also to protect them from water. Um, you don't like the the name, the popular name of the Natural History Museum, and that's why I've been calling it studiously the Natural History Museum <laughs> as we are face to face. Behind your back, I'll call it the Dead Zoo, but you don't like that. <laughs> I am a loner <laughs> in my own little corner on that one. Um, the more I studied it, and I know why people call it that, um, but the more I studied this museum, the more it became clear to me that it, in its day, was an active scientific institution and that the kind of nostalgia that surrounds it now, which I understand entirely, and people love it. I was just having a conversation uh, with your researcher outside about the Dead Zoo, and Nigel Monaghan, the curator, always laughs at me um, about that. But the thing that became clear to me as I studied it was that it was an active scientific institution in its day. It brought the culture of natural science into Ireland. It drew in normal citizens. It drew in people from who were kind of scientific practitioners, but were away in the military, so, you know, military doctors and things like that. The men of science, and I can go back to that term later, if you like, of Ireland saw it as a kind of hub. So it was an active research organization that was really trying to put Ireland on the map in terms of natural science, Mm. both in the UK and globally. So it had as much a scientific function as the botanical gardens, the zoological gardens, and all of those. yes. And I find that the, the language around it, the idea that it's a museum of a museum or that it's a, a dead zoo, kind of obscures that. And it, it, it doesn't really say what the museum did and what its importance to Irish history and Irish the history of science in Ireland was, or the history of museums in Ireland, indeed. So, yeah, but I know I'm willing to occupy my lonely corner. <laughs> I mean, to some extent, it's, I know it's about, it's about science, but it's also about taxidermy, isn't it? The specimens 
are basically, uh, in some cases, massive examples, but they are examples of the art of the taxidermist, aren't they? They are, which has changed a lot over the centuries, as, as anyone who's been to the museum and seen some of the, some of the taxidermical examples will know. Taxidermy is an interesting way of talking about science and an interesting way of preserving things because the, the museum preserves specimens in a few different ways. One of them is obviously pinning insects. One of them is, you know, in liquid. And then there are the, the examples that everyone thinks about the dead zoo when they think about. It's what makes people call the museum the dead zoo are the taxidermied animals. But Oftentimes, taxidermy and animals are simply skins that are stretched over a structure, and they, they don't really retain very much of their own biology. The eyes are often glass. Um, the teeth may be real. This, there may be a skull underneath the skin, but oftentimes they're basically a sculpture underneath with a skin stretched over it that show us what that animal looked like. So that's not true today. Today there will be sort of fiberglass, blown fiberglass molds that skins are put over. But at the time, they would be made from wire, from straw, from wood, from clay, from any number of things underneath. So what you're seeing is oftentimes the the taxidermist's interpretation of the animal, which sometimes is brilliant. Like the, the tiger that's there was, I believe, taxidermied by Roland Ward of London, who was very famous and was really brilliant taxidermist. But some of them were taxidermied by people who didn't really know what they're doing. The Williams Brothers of Dame Street also did a brilliant job as well. There's a lot of their stuff in the collection. But the taxidermy and animals are more, oftentimes our ideas about what animals should look like rather than what the animal actually looked mm-hmm. like in terms of scientific object. Tell us then about the role that the Natural History Museum played in the development of education in Ireland. It was really interesting. Um, it played a role in lots of different areas of education. Now, the, the Royal Dublin Society ran a number of classes in popular science. So they did chemistry, zoology, uh, natural history, geology. So the, the Natural History Museum's collections were used in those. And those were kind of general courses of, say, 12 to 15 lectures that people could go to either during the day or during the evening. And those were also migrated out into the provinces in a series of provincial lectures and oftentimes specimens from the museum would be taken out in, into the provincial lectures. One of the areas that it was also influential in that people don't really think about, even though it's connected to the way that people use the museum today, is that they were also attached to the schools of design. So the schools that eventually became NCID also had access to all the RDS's collections. So the schools of drawing and design would, would refer to the Natural History Museum's collections, um, and also to the Botanical Museum. They were sent specimens from the Botanical Museum on a pretty regular basis. So they began a, a series of popular scientific lectures and classes that were free. They also influenced artistic production based around the principles of John Ruskin and John Ruskin's idea that beauty and nature must always go hand in hand. So that's, that's partly why the museum was used for that. The book focuses primarily on the years 1840 to 1870. And of course, not quite bang in the middle, towards the end of that period, you see the publication of Darwin's Origin of of Species. In the history of the museum, is or are Darwin's theories and Darwinist ideas on natural selection, are they being debated? Are they playing out in any way? They are, but it's kind of invisible. The most spectacular public debate around Darwin's ideas in Ireland took place in 1874 when um, a Carlo-born physicist, John Tyndall, gave what he called um, the Belfast Address. So he's a scientific naturalist and, and gave this kind of what some people considered an incendiary address saying that you know, nature should only be looked at and understood through scientific means. Before that, it's kind of hard to find 
any really clear debates around Darwin's ideas. And and they didn't really take place in the Natural History Museum because the, the curator at the time, Alexander Cart, who's one of my heroes from sort of 1851 to 1881, was very interested in keeping everyone involved in the museum and keeping as many people involved and happy as he could. He was a real kind of coalition builder. So he chose not to be, con- well, I, there's no writing that says he chose not to be controversial. In my reading of his records, uh, I think he chose not to be controversial because he had lots of people of all different points of view. So you can't really tell from the museum's records how Darwinism played out or what kind of conversations were happening. What we ha- what you can see it is in conversations behind the scenes or, or correspondence between friends or, you know, kind of references between people in private. So, for instance, um, there are letters basically from one of Alexander Cart's assistants when he was in London, when Cart was in London, J. Emerson Reynolds wrote to him and said, oh, I hope Darwin doesn't catch you and, you know, make you a convert to his theories. <laughs> um, and there was a series, there were two scientific papers given at an RDS lecture on the same material. So there was a man named Edward Brennan who found um, prehistoric remains of kind of megafauna in a cave in Waterford. And Brennan gave a paper on his find that basically said, look, due to the biblical flood, these were all jumbled together. And he kind of attributes the condition of them to biblical history. And Alexander Cart gave a paper on the same evening about the same materials, but he puts them in a kind of pan-European framework. He names all the specimens. He talks about how they sit in with Cuvier's ideas of extinction. And, and he basically places them in a kind of scientific context that connects Ireland to the rest of European science. He doesn't directly gainsay Brennan's point of view, but he also just kind of goes around it very politely and then says, oh, Mr. Brennan's brilliant and I hope more people bring us these things and he's, isn't he wonderful for bringing us this stuff. So, <laughs> A real um, diplomat. Very diplomatic and, and you see that happening a lot. People people refer to it, but it's it doesn't seem to be an open... Hmm. So it's kind of subtext. There's a subtext, yeah. but but it's and you can tell people were talking about it behind the scenes. But there's hmm. nothing official. There's nothing in the official records. Now the book is called the First National Museum, and it's interesting. It's significant uh, that our first national museum was a science museum. Science not being a thing that we necessarily associate with Ireland or with Ireland in the 19th century. I think that was one of my my favorite things about doing this research was that science was deeply embedded into popular culture in the 19th century, to the extent that when the first purpose-built museum on the island was made, it was a natural history museum, it was a science museum. The first museum that was publicly funded was was prior to that, the Museum of Economic Geology, which ended up becoming um, the Museum of Irish Industry, was publicly funded, but not to the same extent. So both of them were science museums. And, And I think that runs against this idea that cultural nationalism wasn't interested in science because that's kind of not true. There were choices made in the early state around what to focus on. And Nicholas White says that, you know, that the news, basically the new state wasn't necessarily against science and it wasn't hostile to modernism, it was hostile to spending money. So, um, <laughs> even the, on pensions. Even on pensions. So the, um, you know, the early state made choices to focus on things that were cultural and archaeological rather than scientific. But the records of the Natural History Museum show that actually, at least in the case of natural history, science was deeply embedded in, in 19th century Irish culture, which is something that surprised me and I think is one of the nicest outcomes of the book. Well, it's 
a much beloved institution and it's great now to have a history of that institution to find out where it came from and that it was in fact our first national museum that's the title of the book the first national museum dublin's natural history museum in the 19th century it's published by cork university press and my guest is the author dr shara murphy shara many thanks for joining us on the history show thank you for inviting me miles enjoyed it That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Dungan, and producer Logan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.